Welcome to Fintech Insider in conversation with. This was recorded live over on Clubhouse. If you want to join our merry little club, then search 11FS Fintech Insider on Clubhouse and join the conversation next time we're live. I'm David Breer, and in this very special episode, I spoke to a really lovely human called Bo Hartman, who is the CTO over at Nomi Health. Uh, previously to this, Bo was the lead architect over on Marcus by Goldman Sachs, and amongst a bunch of other really interesting roles that he's held at Barclays and Capital One, Bo has really had an interesting career. Um, obviously, you're no stranger to this, and we'll get into that. But uh, I mean, for everybody who uh, ha- uh, is tuned in uh, on this first part, I mean, where are you in the world right now, Bo? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I am in very cold uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, we've had a storm. I don't know if it made it to the news internationally, but um, we had a 120-year storm uh, hit us the other day. We have six inches of snow on the ground, and Fahrenheit-wise, we're about 10 degrees so Celsius, what is that? Uh, uh, what ten negative or somewhere like that? And uh, it, it's unheard of for the state of Texas. We have rolling blackouts. End of times. It feels more like twenty twenty and a half is taking place. Uh, yes. I mean, just when you thought you were over, you know, phase wave five or whatever it is of COVID, then uh, the next version of this comes in with a blizzard in Texas. Yeah, who would have thought it? But uh, thank you very much to everybody who's jumping in and joining us. Uh, as I said a second ago, for everybody who's here, we're going to be talking about um, can banks really build tech? I mean, uh, I said a second ago, this has been quite an interesting sort of controversial. I feel like I've touched a nerve on LinkedIn this week with with some people. Some of the messages are like, no, they can't. Like, and, you know, here's the 50,000 reasons why they can't do this. And, you know, and then some people who either are in banks or are very uh, actively doing things bank, in banks are like, yes, and here's all of the reasons. So we're going to try and unpack that a little bit um, in terms of where can they actually get to and great examples of, I mean, where it's gone really well and and then maybe some examples of where it's not gone so well as well. But uh, how's it going, Jason? Thank you for, for jumping. Me and Bo, we're just getting comfy. So uh, it's good of you to join us. Good to see you, dude. How's well, uh, to see you, but listen to you. I know. I mean, I, I, it's still this um, slightly strange kind of context of having already talked to you two or three times today, this weird thing where I ask you how you're doing and what's going on. And it's, <laughs> it just feels very forced, doesn't it? But uh, but for everybody else's benefit, how's it going? Not quite as dramatic good. as Bo's... Uh, you know, 100-year storm going on up in Rutland, is it? But uh, still quite interesting times. Yeah, no, it's good. My wife's just come back from her horse riding. My son's watching YouTube videos and playing Xbox. So pretty much life as usual in uh, in house baits oh good have you been pancake flipping today obviously it's pancake day not yet no not yet you need to get on that british tradition you've got to keep that going Bo, do you guys have like every time i'm in, I'm in the u.s like pancakes are like everywhere so like pancake day uh, yeah. surely doesn't mean a thing really well so to me specifically it does because remember i lived in the uk for whatever six That's years true. so so I, I i know pancake day uh, but in the united states every day is pancake day Come on. That's why we've got to love the US. Like, uh, so if you're going to have something, you want to have it every day. Right? I'm, exactly. I'm all for that. So, Jason, like, topic of the day can banks really build tech? And I think, you know, if we sort of unpack what that really means in terms of, you know, building out technology, building out teams, building out the culture to actually make those things happen, 
Uh, I'm going to give you the, I think I went first last time, so I'm going to give you the opening salvo. I get the salvo opening salvo. Nice. Yes. And, and actually, I, it's interesting because like, I, I find me and you are reasonably antagonistic to each other. So <laughs> just whichever general. way you go on this one, I'm going to have to go the other way. So what do, what do you think? Can banks really build tech? Well, to be honest, it's the perfect clickbaity headline because it's really easy to argue either way. You know, banks can obviously build tech. Look, they are tech. You know, they they have entire systems that are moving money around, managing cattle and liquidity, connecting into Mastercard and Visa. They've been tech for for a long time. So there's, but there's something kind of deeper in that, isn't there? It's not just about can you have computer systems which manage these things from a day to day perspective. It's like tech in the new sense of tech in the new operating models, in the new stacks, in the new speed and capabilities and flexibility and and everything else. Uh, And I think that's where the question gets interesting because I think, you know, software engineers in in big banks can obviously build tech or technology. Let's say banks can do technology, but can they do tech? I think is really where it gets down to the uh, the answer. I feel like this is the, um, for anybody who hasn't seen the, uh, Bo, you're probably with me more on this one than than Jason might be, but white men can't jump. Have you seen the film White Men Can't Jump? When he's like, (laughs) okay, you can listen to, I think it was Marvin Gaye. You can listen to Marvin Gaye, but can you really hear it? Like it's, so like they can build tech, but not really build tech. Do you want to unpack that a little bit, Jason? Because I'm not sure I'm quite with you so far. Well, Look, I used to work in Accenture way back in the day, and the the classical large-scale project of implementing new system of getting requirements and finding a data center and purchasing software from some big vendor and then systems integrating it in with everything else while making sure that the processes, the people, the business strategy, everything sort of led in the way of creating some particular monetary reward that may have been three years off, five years off. You know, there's a whole industry built around technology, acquisition, uh, integration, and trying to find the elusive benefits of doing that. But I think when people say, can banks build tech? I don't think that's what they're talking about because, you know, the the new tech companies, you know, the fangs of the world do things differently because they've had different, they've, they've been building in a different business environment with slightly different rules and drivers. So actually the strategic efficiency of getting a, a large at scale organization to this next step two years down the line has had to give way to a we're in a complex and chaotic marketplace with tens if not hundreds of players with new services coming along daily that we have to integrate in some ways we really need to build intelligent services that deliver valuable results to end customers and i need to have 200 of those teams working simultaneously without dependencies on each other in a way that can scale because one of those services might become crazy viral and suddenly I've got 15 million people on there. So, you know, sizing a data center and buying a Sun server or an IBM server as, as I did in a long distant previous life, you know, it's just not there anymore. And the reason that cloud and microservices and APIs and Agile and all of those things are here are because the business fundamentals are different for a fast growth tech company trying to explore and find a new sustainable high growth you know business based on services that that are uh, that haven't been around for um, before. So I think in that perspective, from that place, if we say you know can banks build that build that tech, then I I think uh, it's a 
is a different operating model. And we know that operating model change at scale is one of the absolute hardest things to do. It's what leads to innovators dilemma, where large established players with all of the money, brand, customers, you know, technology connections uh, get overtaken and superseded by new tech players. So we know that that operating model is just uh, is very difficult to uh, to change an organization at scale at. So I, I would agree, I would say that they can build technology and they can use the technology within their operating model at the speed they're working with, with the providers they're working at, but they can't do tech. Hmm, okay. So, I mean, it's worth bringing you, Bo, into this at that point. And for anybody who doesn't know who's listening to this, Bo Hartman, Bo, uh, I mean, XCAP1, Barclay Cards, CIO, uh, Barclays, but I, I guess that was all building up to, Bo, the job that you did at Goldman Sachs. Um, and actually, I mean, I, I should add to this as well. I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a banking and, and, and tech geek for sure, but you're like the best friend that I ever played Destiny with online as well. So like, <laughs> I just want to give a, give a shout out to that. So uh, if anybody wants to play uh, Xbox gaming online, like Bo's your guy as well. So, uh, but Bo, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the roles that you've done and the world yeah. that you sort of shaped out at, uh, I think it was just over five years at, at Goldman Sachs. Right, right, right. And by the way, Jason did, did an awesome job there. There's so much to unpack and so much ripe to go after in discussion that uh, I think it's awesome. Um, just real quick, uh, just, yeah, um, 12 years at Capital One, I was there what I call the golden era when we were inventing air, both on intelligent call routing, data analytics, and you know mass deployment at scale. And so really cut my teeth there uh, with some incredible folks. Went to Barclays and became eventually became the chief information officer for Barclay Card International and, and really worked with multiple nations, multiple platforms, and really had the big problem with what Jason was even in saying there was we have, you know, you have scale platinum forms and folks saying, hey, you can't do tech. And I, I would argue we were doing billions of transactions a year. I'd like anybody from any of those other companies to really put up their billion of transactions versus a billion of transactions that control an economy on a day-to-day basis and the intensity that that takes to run it. And then I was recruited to come to Goldman Sachs to build and launch Marcus at Goldman Sachs. And then you know eventually uh, there was a credit card platform we launched in there as well, made partner at Goldman. And then I retired from Goldman at the beginning of last year, and I've, and I've joined a startup called Nomi Health, where we're actually going to do the same thing to the insurance benefits and payments platforms in the United States, which is roughly about a $4 trillion market. And what I have found, what's really fascinating, is the insurance payment platforms are even in this dilemma further back than the banks, which was somewhat surprising to me. So the corollaries there are just fascinating to observe i mean that's super super interesting like unpacking that uh, i would i mean i i started insurance uh i started in insurance not i started insurance that was a bold claim to make wasn't it i started in insurance before banking definitely can attest to that you know the insurance industry is uh almost a, a decade behind i'd say in terms of the the change i know nigel walsh will get onto me about that one uh when he sort of catches that a little bit later but uh but uh, i mean how did you go about making these things happen in those banks then because obviously as you as you say i mean cap one is a uh, a bit of a different beast isn't it, it from a from a cultural yeah. perspective from other organizations but also i remember talking to you inbounds to goldman sachs and there was a few things that were almost non-negotiable for you to go and attempt to do what you did there so do you want to talk to us a little bit about that yeah so um the first thing is that um 
One, I've always said there are three things that are holding banking back, which are actually the three things that are holding back insurance companies, which are the products, the platforms, and, and the people. or organization. So I call them the three debts, organizational debt, product debt, and platform debt. And, and so even Cap One had its own form of those debts, right? And the, the thing that I learned at Cap One, honed at Barclays, was when you, you have to look at those three debts and accept them. Barclays, 140,000 people, moves at a certain organizational pace. So that is your biggest issue that you're going to have to address. All technologists know what good looks like, right? So there's, there's nobody going to walk in and say, hey, you should do this. And their technology going, no, that's terrible. They all know what good looks like. So the biggest is the organizational debt at somewhere like a, a, a Barclays, right? But then, like say at a Cap One, the the biggest debt is the product debt, right? So you have products that make millions and millions and millions of dollars, and you really can't be, um, you know, really um, evolving those too fast to disrupt the market position that you currently have, right? So you have to pay homage to those debts and figure out how to work within them. At Goldman Sachs. Because we were building something from the beginning, um, I actually uh, walked in saying, uh, we will be the ones creating those debts, right? So let's be very careful about how we create them. And in in that concept, bringing the technology to bear was about componentry, right? So I didn't go in and said, everything has to be in AWS. Everything has to, you know, at the time, you know, being Kubernetes, everything. I go, I want to componentize the entire stack. And, and then that way I can bring in vendors and exit vendors as fast as I want. Because what was I optimizing for? I was optimizing for product and platform to get into market, right? And because those are the two things that were that were in, in my big way. So that was the architecture that I brought when I sat down and went after it. But the the important thing that I had was I didn't have organizational debt because everyone all the way up to Lloyd Blankfein was behind Marcus, right? And so we had all the support that we needed. And we were hiring everybody as we were building. So we didn't have this ingrained notion of, you know, what has been taught and what, you know, what has been in place. So that that's how using the first two uh, companies in my career impacted how we were building it uh, within Marcus. And then for Nomi, taking those lessons and actually being able to do full modernization in technology and how to integrate it into the insurance world has actually been <laughs> just as equally as fascinating uh, as we've been going along. Yeah. The comment you made there is like, we were making the debt. You know, actually, yeah. if, you, if you're thinking in that way, in terms of the way in which you're establishing the technology patterns, the processes, mm -hmm. but also the, I guess, the redundancy in the expectation of the the, the shelf yeah. life of, of the things that you're putting in. I mean, that that is a, I mean, you and you and and Jason is starting to agree here a little bit. Like that's the almost the key to that, isn't it? You were building things that you knew were going to need to be evolving. I mean, Jason, we we talk about this a lot with organizations. It's building a platform in that way. Bo is not a is not a project. You're establishing the rhythm for the business. Aren't you? So you actually nailed it there. And, and and one of the things that when Jason was saying, I was punching the air with victory. Like yes, one of the biggest things that I I always tell folks, and and I think about it when I'm building Nomi as well, which is. Everybody wants to fight about the right technical solution, or is it two-week sprints versus three-week sprints? And I always tell folks that it's just a distraction to the real conversation, right? Like having one-week sprints in my mind is, especially in the banking world, is is more about ego than it is about actually getting functionality into the market, right? The bigger thing is, what is the debt that I'm going to level on the business down the road? What am I doing to the J curve as, as I launch it? And some of the things that we did when we first launched. I would have J curve conversations. And it was interesting because Harit Nye, the uh, other founder CEO, he said, you're more worried about the J curve than you are saying technology solution. I'm like, yeah, because what I pick, we're stuck with, 
<laughs> and that's going to drive him to the ground. One of the things that Jason kind of touched on or to put words in Jason's mouth that I really loved is when you have a banking system, which is why the mainframe still run the banking world, it's already charged off, right? And so when people say, I built a new core banking platform, everyone's going to run to it. I'm like, not really. No, they're not. And people go, well, why not? It's modern technology built by Google engineers. It has all this. It has all that. And I'm like, yeah, but the mainframes that run the majority of the credit card portfolios on the platform have been charged off for 20 years. So literally, they're paying nothing for them. So, you know, and you want to offer up a $50 million project to replace them. How are you going to, what's that going to do to their business and their J-curve? So I don't think we as technologists spend enough time having that conversation, mm-hmm. right? Is it, it might be bad, but it's free. It, but it might be bad, but it's free. I can do things on the edges, right, to make it just a tad bit better. So I think the, the, the I've actually landed in the spot as someone who's built a modern bank. Actually, I built four of them at Goldman, right? I built a modern bank. And I didn't have to worry about that conversation. Looking back on five years, I go, God, you know, SaaS services aren't free. Oh, wow. You know, that that isn't free, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like people go, oh, we'll just use SaaS, right? Well, what happens if you spent $10 million on the SaaS service over five years? You could have gone and built it yourself. That's coming from me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and so I have friends going, oh, my God, he said it out loud, right? But I'm like, that's a problem that that I think will drive more of the conversation than can banks tech. It's can they afford it? <laughs> like, like that, I think, is a much more interesting conversation at this point. SaaS at scale, as you say, that I mean, and the potential scale that you know, really big global organizations are looking at it at. I mean, it gets kind of silly, right? In in terms of um, you know the licensing and the structures and the you know the uh, the fees for those things. But uh, I mean, how much of what you did achieve, I guess, through that that period, you know, through mm-hmm. Cap One, and actually, I mean, going into Goldman, like I, I remember. Uh, not wanting to uh, to fanboy too much, but I remember having the conversation with you inbound to Goldman. I, like mm-hmm. I literally remember where I was sitting in level thirty nine, and you were evangelical. You, I, I mean, I mean, the hour that we had talking about it, you didn't mm-hmm. really talk about technology once. The thing right. that you r- continued to talk about was the culture, the the right. the the, yes. the the thing that you you fought for hardest in order yep. to be able to get the permissions to do was the culture of how you set it up. So I want to talk about that because, I mean, it's like burned in my brain. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so, and I'm still very evangelical on on culture. And that's why I talk about the three debts and, so, you know, talk about, you know, organizational debt is, is actually the hardest one and the biggest one to overcome is that, uh, again, like I said, all technologists know what good look like. Not Not shocking, right? And if you really put a critical eye against your products, you know, you can say, hey, we got to kill five of these things because they're not making money. And the only reason we have them around is they're nice pets. You know what I mean? When, when a product becomes a pet, then you know you're in trouble. It's culture, by the way, that will enable the other two. I always tell people it's, you know, organizational debt's the most important. Product debt is the second. And, and platform is the third, kind of an ancillary conversation. And then because is, it's if you don't have the right culture, or if you don't have a defined culture that people buy into, because right is a sort of a, you know, it, it's a, the beauties in the eye beholder. What is right culture, right? Is Google's culture right? Is Facebook's culture right? Is Amazon's culture right? I mean, you know, some of those companies, if you talk to people on the inside, they talk about how horrible the culture actually is, right? So you got to get what's right for you and your community. And it's got to be 
the one that actually gets to the outcome, right? Where you want to go. Um, the other big thing that I've really had it hammered into me, and it's just it's played out over and over, is purpose in an organization. If you do not have a purpose in the organization, or if you have a purpose that people can align against, then you get compliance. And if compliance is the only thing you're getting, you can forget about any sort of excellence, innovation, you know, any of those things that people point to, right? That says, hey, we want X. I, I always love big banks always go, we're going to have an innovation, you know, uh, innovator, uh, you know, um, incubator. I always love that. And, uh, and I always have this smile on my face because I have this picture of this, the CEO of a large global bank going down to a lower floor and turning to a mid-level manager and be and go, be innovative. Well, well, if they've been compliant for 10 years, what does innovation look like? Like, how would they be rewarded for it? Or is it being compliant more important? So getting that right of first defining what culture you want, what is the purpose of that culture, and finding the people who link their passion and their performance to that purpose is the number one thing. You can get a mediocre team to do incredible things if they are aligned to that purpose and they have passion to it. And I've seen it over and over again. I've been sent in to rescue countless businesses and projects. And the first thing I do is I find out what the purpose is. And I and I make sure that everyone can figure out how to connect themselves for what they do on a daily basis to that purpose. And, and once you do that, then I've, I've seen very few things that could not be solved. Mm. I mean, Jason, you were saying something similar the other night, actually, in terms of the difference that a purpose and a vision around a problem can can kind of solve. So, I mean, there's a lot to relate to in that, isn't there? Yeah, it, it really reminds me of this thing I read a really long time ago, Character of a Corporation, a couple of uh, UK consultants, and they did uh, one of these classic business two-by-twos. And the, the axes were how goal-oriented an organization was as a horizontal, and a vertical was how sort of networked or caring the organization was. So you had these four four bits. And right at the top of the top quadrant, you know, really caring, really networked, but crazy goal-oriented with Disney and McDonald's and like, but but actually when you thought about it, the company's Apple up in that top corner, it it had a narrative, it had a story. It meant actually that people in the organization could say, look, David, this just isn't working out because you're not getting us to the place we want to go. And it's not a personal thing. Like the organization still has heart and still feels like a great place to work, but it's very goal-oriented at the same time. And I think the thing that gets that to happen is story and narrative and vision and that, that you know, it's being a member of a, you know, top division sports team. It's like, I'm sorry, you're a defender and you're just not defending. So we're going to have to let you go. But the team has an esprit de corps. The best teams feel that that kind of feeling. And it's because they've got this shared vision of winning the championship or the cup or the whatever else. So I definitely buy into it. And, and part of the book was about how most companies flip-flop from either being very networked, let's have an away day and get everyone together and, and we can all feel, you know, super nice. Oh, no one's really performing. Right, we're going to sack the bottom 5% of people and everyone, you know, if you're not performing, we're going to sack you. Oh dear, the, the organization, the culture's falling apart. Great, let's have another away day and give people toys and presents. You know, <laughs> it, it flips from side to side unless yeah, yeah. you've got really strong narrative that can hold those seemingly opposite sort of angles in place at the same time. Mm. I mean, is it is that an interesting point, though, I guess, in this period? I mean, sort of breaking that into where we are today, actually, I mean, Bo, in the periods where you've been able to deliver 
most significantly in those big organizations, there has been that galvanized purpose of, you know, moving from a, we turn off the lights and we come back tomorrow organization to a 24-7-365 organization. Is there always like this galvanizing goal? And it, I mean, the, the hard thing with that is banks sometimes budget by years rather than by purpose. Yeah. But again, that comes back to a cultural bias again, doesn't it? Yeah, no, uh, and, and Jason hit a little bit on the stuff that I, I, I love, right? Like the, the away days or the or the mugs or the slogan on it. And whenever I see those, I just like rub my forehead and go, ouch, <laughs> like don't do that, right? I think to the question directly is like, you know, galvanize, you know, if banks schedule, you know, schedule budgets over years, how do you get passion? How do you get connected? Actually at Barclays is the best example I'll, I'll ever get is when uh, when I went to Barclays, you know, I found an organization that was large, calcified. Actually, to be honest with you, in my first few meetings there, I'd be in a meeting with business leaders, engineering leaders and that reported to me. And as a business leader walked in, literally one of the engineering leaders would flinch. And I went, wow, that's interesting. And so I, I, I looked into that and I said, hey, what, what's going on, on here? And as I talked to people, they they had they had no connection to what was the outcome that they were trying to do that day or outcome what they're trying to do in the business process so i literally and this is a very true story i literally went about saying how do i connect that person's job to the end results and so i actually went on a bit of a, a journey myself which helped me do that and the very short version of a very long story goes i actually met one of our customers i got a little bit of background on this customer ahead of time did not know I was going to meet her. And then I met her, right? And it was the most terrifying moment of my life because I was thinking, oh my God, the things we do to these people, that's un- unheard of. But then I started talking to her and I wasn't allowed to ask her about her banking relationship until the very end. I said, does my work mean anything to you? And she said, you literally mean nothing to me. And she said it, and, and it wasn't it wasn't aggressive. It was just a matter of fact. You mean nothing to me. You're another commodity. And I thought to myself, I have 3,000 people that their work does not matter. That That is a problem. So what I did is when I sat down with people and I'd ask them, I said, what do you do? And I had this one engineer in India. She was incredible. Prachi Dada. I'll never forget Prachi. And Prachi said, I'm a low-cost provider. And I went, oh, please don't ever say that again. <laughs> right? I said, uh, what do you do? And she goes, I run the payment servers for the UK. Ah, you help Sarah buy lunch for her mother. And Sarah was the customer I met. And I said, and the last thing she bought on her Barclay card was lunch for her mother, telling her mother that she had cancer. And I said, you helped Sarah buy that lunch. And could you imagine if that card didn't go through, that transaction didn't happen, how that would have changed the dynamic in that moment? So think about that. You helped Sarah. So, and so what happened is with every area that we went through, everyone tried to figure out how they were connecting to Sarah or how they were connecting to Tom to buy the teddy bear he threw to take home to his son he hadn't seen in three weeks. And that created the purpose of our concept. We had a concept of guardians and we had the concept of guardians and catalysts. It was catalysts, guardians and catalysts. So guardians were the ones who ran the production systems and they helped Sarah. The catalysts were the ones who injected new products that allowed people to access the ability to, to meet their day-in, day-out needs in that way. And so everyone started identifying as guardians and catalysts, and that became our purpose. Our purpose was to be a guardian. Our purpose was to be a, uh, a catalyst. And that was from a calcified organization, right? And so I think that could be as easy as that. And looking back, it felt huge, like a hard piece of work. I look back now and go, that was kind of easy. I go to Marcus 
and it was even and it was simple. There was an article that was written as we were building Marcus, uh, written in the Atlantic about middle class shame, where a guy was making six digits in USD, and he couldn't make ends meet. And we all happened to have read the article over the weekend, just for some weird reason we did. And our call to action became, how do we help people not face consumer debt with shame? And, and how do we help them do that? And that, drove, that became our purpose, right? And that drove everything we did. And, and then the other pieces of culture start falling into place. The rituals of the weekly stand-ups, you know, the pizza after work that sort of stuff then starts falling into place. Mm. That, I mean, that's a fascinating story, Bo. And, and like I say, the impact of that changes materially the the things that people do on a day-to-day basis, but also the, I guess, the intensity to, to Jason's point in terms of the uh, how hard you pursue creating that change. It's interesting. Again, we've spoken so little about technology in this conversation, which I, I, I actually think is such a sign of where the problem really is. Like you say, both most bank architects can point to the problem within an architecture pretty quickly. Motivating teams around solving those problems, or even, uh, I mean, in, in, in Jason, look, we've worked with lots of organizations over the last couple of years where, you know, the cry is almost, yes, do that. It's the right idea, but don't bring it anywhere near us else. We'll have to take it apart. And it's like, is this a in the same way as actually we've got in the front line of of consumer banks and various different walks of banks we've got people who truly understand the customer we do have people who truly understand technology but are probably inhibited by the way in which the organization thinks about that you know the the biggest thing i mean in my time at lloyd's banking group the the biggest thing that i saw that was the the most significant change in that organization was the alignment of the business and the technology team, because it no longer, you know, Bo, I'm sure you've been on the end of this. It's no longer throwing something over the fence and hoping the tech guys figure it out. And then it's them for not doing it, or they think it's you for not doing the, you know, the requirements around it. So, I mean, is this almost an admission that technology is everything and everything is technology? It, so what's interesting, and especially um, I, I've been through that cycle of, you know, embed tech, break tech out. In fact, when I showed up at, at um, Goldman Sachs, my first day, so I showed up the night before, before I became an employee, met with Harit, we had a glass of wine, and we talked about all the great and good that we were going to go do. The next morning I walk in, the first conversation I had with him over coffee was, oh, by the way, you don't just report to me, you now also report into um, the tech organization inside of Goldman. And I laughed and I went... Why didn't you tell me last night? He said, because we're scared you wouldn't come. <laughs> and, so, um, and, and, and this is what I told him. I said, you know, if you're going to be a technologist in banking this day, you have to be, you know, fluent and, and able to, to d- handle relationships on, on both sides of the fence, right? And so that didn't bother me at all. This whole, we're going to embed tech into the business and then we're going to break it out. I know several companies who broke it up, put it in the business and rotated it back because then it became the Wild West and their price, you know, their cost of services soared, their com- the complexity of their networks shot through the roof, their risk you know, profiles like went completely into the, to the red. And I think you're getting to it. Um, and this is what I loved about the Cap One culture. If you walked into a Cap One meeting when I was there, you couldn't tell who a technologist was or who a business person was. Everyone was so well-versed into what we were doing from both a business perspective and a technology perspective that you could carry a conversation. So the people who got the, the roles or got the lead initiatives was based on, are you the best person to lead that role, right? 
And I, I think there's, you know, it was a bit of a hippie commune back then, but I think that to me was, was like the right way of going about it. Right. So I know enough about credit models. Do you want me to build one? No, you do not. But I know enough about it that when I'm in the room, my input is valuable, right? So my expertise is on the technical side, but my input is valuable. On the converse side, I love working with people who run those credit models when they understand the technology challenges that I'm up against, right? And I, and I think that all businesses, whether it's concrete manufacturing, and we're learning that in, in the pandemic, right? To everything else is that, especially in Texas with the rolling blackouts, all businesses in some way, shape, or form are dependent on technology. So everyone has to under have a, a working knowledge of what what do they mean by technology. I totally agree with that. I think uh, you know the the funniest in a kind of tragic comedy way conversations with innovation teams is when you know some senior exec has seen a chatbot and suddenly it's now all about <laughs> chatbots at their building. Um, yeah, because suddenly. Uh, when you don't know technology, technology becomes the foreground, and then you're focusing on the technology. When you have a, an understanding of it, even if you couldn't code it yourself, you kind of get the, the paradigms and how it fits together and how you would build mm-hmm. it. Then that becomes just a tool like the business model and like regulation, like everything else, in order to solve that customer problem profitably. But there are so few execs that have technology as a as a conversational background which means they don't have to focus on it because it's you know it's like playing guitar or piano or something where you're having to focus every note rather than the song because you don't really know this so so it's just taking all of the air out of the room when i was at monzo when we were building sort of that out back-end engineers took financial conduct exams because they wanted to know, you know, and actually Anne Bowden, CEO of Starling, would run like this weekly sort of, and this was when there were, I don't know, 20 or 30 people, this weekly thing around, right, I'm going to t- teach you, you know, th- this team banking. So, right, this week, we're going to talk about capital liquidity. And next week, we're going to talk about capital adequacy ratios. And these were just, you know, back-end engineers, but they were systems thinkers. And actually, you know, Anne's point was, like, people make banking out to be this very, very difficult thing. But honestly, like compared to technical architecture, you guys kind of like look after, I'll give you a couple of hours on it. And you've probably got enough, like more than the majority of the execs who have worked from me on a bank as how banks make money and how this works. And so if you can get an understanding of like how um, deposits and lending and net interest margin and maturity transformation kind of works. And at the same time, you can understand why the major risk elements are there, who the regulators are and what they're protecting against and what those the basic rules are. Uh, and you're building the technology. That sort of overall view gives you such a rich um, ground, which means that actually the tech guys don't have to run across to compliance or compliance pounce on technology because now they're making a, a credit model that d- is dependent on whether you're a man or a woman. And suddenly people are like, what? You're doing what? And you know, no <laughs> one had thought yeah. really to mention this to anyone. So I find that fascinating, this sort of cross-functional enough thing rather than the hyper specialization of a of a, a mature yeah. organization at scale where it's like look don't you worry about uh, risk and compliance that's their job don't worry about the customer that's his job like the product design and you know is is these guys you're building this this particular small cog like focus on that i can't uh, agree more and, and it's we all have stories uh, about the perfect, you know, meld together of the individual. There, there's one funny thing, and I don't know this is where you want to go to, but it's one funny thing is when I was b- building something out recently, though, 
we tried to do that where we would take an engineer lead and put him in front of a business, say, hey, you're going to lead this business. And it'd be surprising of how many of the younger engineers are like, actually, I said I wanted to do it, but I don't. <laughs> I, went, <"Really?" laughs> I went, really? I said, why? You know, and it was fascinating. And their answer was, because there's too much uncertainty. There's too much risk. And mm. I went, but that is business, right? That mm. That is what, it, there, there are unknowable facts in the market. And you just got to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to manage towards X. And so some of my engineers were a little freaked out. Like, you mean I can't test it out? I'm like, you can test it out, but it's going to take you weeks. It's going to take you months. It might yeah. take you years to test that concept out. And so, so we have to think about the curriculum that we mentor and develop those underneath of us, as some of us on this call are older than most. <laughs> um, we mentor to say, sharpen that intuition, sharpen that, you know, find out what that blink power is. And so you can bring your system in uh, thinking to the play, but also understand that blink piece, right? Like that just doesn't look right or that looks real right to me. So yeah. that's, a, that's I mean, another piece of it. I mean, that is an interesting thing for, uh, you know, the requirements of a modern day technologist are fundamentally mm -hmm. changing, you know, to your point around. I mean, when I, um, I like by no means am I anywhere near the, the skill sets to sort of build these things. But actually, I mean, back when I was doing an undergrad in computing and, and you know, my first job was managing a database for a Viva in C. Like it was insane <laughs> what we were kind of doing. But but the idea of a a, a super, you know, everything that you've just said, Bo, you know, a, an articulate technologist who understands people as well as, if not better than technology, like that is a, we're looking for like, you know, all of the numbers in the suit and like the, the bonus ball, right. In terms of actually mm -hmm. kind of lining those things up, but, but is this the requirement of a modern so, day technology? So I'm not, I'm not convinced by that. I think there is something about the sort of the hyper-articulate, crazy, rational sort of coding engineer that does not want to deal with business people who, who might not be as intelligent as them, who don't really understand the technology. And actually, you know, they want to talk to peers about the thing that fascinates them more than anything. You always need interface elements, like mm -hmm. people who can talk both languages, who can, who can yes. work in both cultures. Yeah. But fundamentally, I, I think the, the biggest thing for me is the is the difference in banking between, you know, your dad's technologist, the person who would do what he was told and go away and just keep this thing running because we've not really had to develop any new systems in a long time. And then people who are now, uh, I don't know, in, in building metaphor, they're not only bricklayers, they're structural engineers, architects, plumbers, right. you know, they are, um, I, I heard a great um, story that, um, that ancient cathedrals that were built over uh, in uh, sort of, medieval times across you know Europe had no ultimate plan they were built by three generations of craftsmen <laughs> who were basically architecting the thing as they went along yeah. so you know you had to make sure this thing would stay upright it had structural integrity it had to be beautiful and you were building on what came before that's a very different stonemason than here's the structural architects you know plans we want yeah. 10 blocks across here and so for me the war for talent on on technologists is on this multi-skilled can work at the super high level but all the way down to coding it themselves and taking so many different things into account that's not your i'm going to get five of you from india or slovenia um and just you know set them for work on a problem I, for me it's a very uh, particular type of person
Yeah, well, you know, it's an, and and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but next time, day we're together over a glass of wine, I'd I'd, I'd love to I'd love to tease this one out because this is going to bore everyone to death. Maybe not Jason, but if, <laughs> and and I find it fascinating. Is I did a piece a couple years ago about someone asked about, hey, when you build stuff, how do you come at it with such creativity, and and what are you really going after? And I said I learned it from my father, who was a carpenter. I so saw I'm a carpenter's son. And my father, it took him 10 years of being a, an apprentice and a journeyman to become a master carpenter. It wasn't 10 years for him to be creative. It was 10 years for him to learn the skills, to use the tools. And then he had another 10 years or so to practice his art. And so I think the technologists or, or engineers that we've been exposed to, or especially in my generation, we were specialists. Like I actually cut my teeth on WAN technology, right? In the early days before we even had the connectivity that we have. And, you know, I had to be specialized in that before I could specialize in other things. And it took me 25 years to get here. Whereas in with, you know, the technology is getting to the place where with low code, no code, you know, and some of those things that are coming online now that we're going to have people be able to not have to specialize in Golang or Clojure or Java or those things. They can, they can have enough depth in the engineering space and enough depth in business that they can use the tools that create art sooner. And now that will still that'll lead to a different set of mistakes, but at least they'll be creating their art sooner and not having to learn the tools. Well, you know, uh, for the and, and to, the that, to that point, um, you know, Monzo is built in Go, and the initial engineers had never coded in Go before. And so the choice of language was about the type of talent that we would get in. And actually, the engineers we wanted didn't want to code in Java or, you know, C. They wanted the, like, they wanted the Google language and to and to, to develop yeah. that. And the engineers well, were, were good enough that actually that they, you know, could pick up, develop, iterate, and, um, you know, and use a new language, even though it wasn't something that they, you know, that, that they'd had 20 <laughs> years of experience on. Well, because it has not been around for 20 years. But. I was going to say, it's funny because in Nomi, with we're building, we're building it in Golang and Clojure, and it's, mm-hmm. that's the exact reason. Not because I think, it's a superior language. I mean, they have benefits, but there's, you know, you could have built it in yeah. any language you want to. Yeah. But it, it was just that is that we wanted people to actually have to write code, not just go grab libraries. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so that's exactly why we did it. I was talking to someone at a bank the other day about this. It's such a different angle to take this from. It's like, you know, is this a strongly typed language or this? Or, or will it be fast and performant? And, you know, how many libraries are there? No, no, it's, it's who do we want to work for us, what do they want and why do they want it? You know, the choice becomes very different. Yep. Mm. And, and, and and not to keep going on the, the rabbit hole, I'll just, I'll give up my piece on this is that, so when you tie it back to your question about can banks tech, right? And everyone goes, oh, it's all written in COBOL or all oh, it's old versions of Java or it's old this and all that. Um, and I, I literally go, yeah, but so we implement, you know, a new language or a new technology in five years, it's going to be something else. So if you get dogmatic about that, that, that technology, mm. you're dogmatic about a tool. So it's basically my dad getting dogmatic about a hammer right? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and getting dogmatic about that hammer when I'm like, yeah, but in five years, is it going to be a different hammer? You, you could be. Okay. Then I just want something to pound nail into wood. That's all I want. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, I think it's an interesting conversation around that. My key question on this, the like, can you build tech or not, is around, uh, I think that often a lot of our clients, the big banks, see, see technology as a tool to deliver the operating model they've got now, which is product and distribution, and then technology and digital is another channel to distribute the product in, in the same way that a branch or a letter or a phone line is. 
Whereas I think new tech sees it uh, sees technology as a fundamentally different approach to deliver services. So I I yeah. go on about this all the time. Like uh, this is about intelligent services now, not commodity products with sort of distribution to it. And I think that that's the you know beyond the uh, scrums and microservices and Kafka and whatever. Um, it's really about the what do you you know what do you think tech's doing for you? And if it's a way of of pretending to be a bank teller with just here's your balance and here's a way of doing things. That's very different from this being like a team of 10 from UBS looking after your personal finances that now we've turned into algorithms and so away you go. So I, I actually yeah. think that the, for me, the difference in, in tech versus the kind of the banking thing is more about the operating model of where the bank needs to go and that tech can do so much more than just be a channel. I think you've nailed it. And because I was going to say that eventually is, what are you trying to get to, right? So um, a couple of years ago, Citibank hired a slowed of AWS engineers, and it became a war inside of City between these AWS engineers and the rest of the city, right? And, and I got to witness the drama from a distance because they were coming in with a dog mag that you can't be a modern company without doing these, these technological things. Whereas City was saying, but we make billions of dollars on this, this product. And so I, so someone, one of the senior executives was asking my opinion uh, uh, one night and I said, what are you trying to do? And, mm. he, and he goes, what do you mean? I said, do you want to become more efficient and reduce operating costs? Then invest in your technology. If you want to sell more of a widget, figure out how do people buy widgets <laughs> like and in, in, in sell more widgets. In fact, I see a lot of friends on this this uh, this call today. And one of the, the people who did this brilliantly was uh, one of my colleagues from Barclays, Tammy Hargraves, who's on, on the call with, I think, uh, her her uh, significant others on with Philip as well. And she rolled out the pay bands for Barclays in the UK. And all it was was the chip from a credit card inside of a plastic band. And there was a little bit of bits and bobs of technology we cobbled together to enable that microtransaction to take place, but it was nothing more than that. And it was widely successful. And we didn't bring in, like you said, Kafka, MongoDB, mm. you know, uh, Kubernetes. It, we cobbled some, you know, .NET stuff together mm. and people were able to buy using the jewelry on their arm and it was successful. It, was, that, was that success? I think it was, right? Was it technologically abled, enabled? Yeah, but it was the, the bits and bobs we had laid around the office floor that we put together to make it happen. So yeah, I, so I, uh, that, that's how I, I try to get people to think about for the sake of why you're doing it. And then from there, you can decide how to enable it. Mm, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing, you use the tools you have. You know, you have the technology that you have to make things happen. And I don't think anybody, I, I think very few organizations have the ability to, you know, shake the uh, etch a sketch clean and start from scratch to to really be able to, as you say, Bo, to to create the you know utopian view of technology. Everybody's driving the car while they're changing the tires, aren't they? In terms of sort mm -hmm. of making those things happen. So, making it happen and providing an experience for that end customer, I think again comes back to the point you were making around you have to care about the customer in the first place, right? You have to mm -hmm. have an awareness of the fact that you're there to create a service that solves a problem for real people right and that's the big thing right and so hitting the street getting out there and by the way the um i i, I assume jason's probably in the same place i am eventually all banks and all in insurance companies and all that will modernize right because they'll, they'll just have to things will get tired things will get old like for example i got a phone call the other day to talk about 
about mainframe developers. I mean, you and I went, I wouldn't be banking on mainframe developers right now because you know they're they're all retired and they're moving on, right? And so that will force people to to either innovate mm-hmm. on the mainframe technologies or it will force people to move to the next evolution of technology. So so there, there there's always a there's always a backstop pushing us along whether we want to or not. Now the question is exactly is you know for for the what does the customer need? What are you trying to get out of it? Are you trying to become more, you know, more efficient, more cost efficient, or do you, you know, that sort of thing? Are you with chatbots? My personal favorite, uh, chatbots. Well, if you have call, like forty-five thousand people in a call center, chatbots probably very useful, right? If you have a new company that has, you know, two agents, chatbots pretty helpful. If you are a small business and you get maybe ten calls a day, chatbots probably not your friend. You know, so understanding what what you need to accomplish is still paramount in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I should have made this story. You know, can FS really build tech then? But so, so you mentioned. I mean, you're you're sort of foray. I can't believe you've left us in banking and like trundled off into insurance. But like, you know, what <laughs> what what has been your your experience uh, so far? And actually, tell everybody a little bit more about Nomi. Yeah, so uh, so uh, of course I was going to get in there with Nomi because I always thought that Marcus was going to be my pinnacle. That I was I would spend the next several years of my life, you know, sitting in an executive chair, looking over powerpoints, and 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 reminiscing back in the good old days when I when I built Marcus or when I built things at Barclays or Cap One. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so uh, I've fallen in a new love and I have a new uh, passion, which is uh, Nomi Health. Uh, Nomi Health. We're a direct healthcare service company. The premise when I decided I was going to join was around, you know, reducing the cost of medical care in the United States by going uh, real-time direct payments and benefits adjudication between self-insured employers and employees, self-insured employers for those not in the U.S., are companies that saw their cost of healthcare going up, took control of their benefits, uh, insurance plans, and just have the large insurance companies adjudicate those plans but they are actually the ones funding them. And so what we're seeing is every year, 10 to 15% of those costs continue to rise. A year where no one's gone to the doctor in the United States because of the pandemic, they all the companies are notified, hey, your, your costs are going to go up by another 25%, which is kind of you know insane. I don't believe in the single payer will be the um, solution to the problem because that creates its own set of issues. So I think it'll be a hybrid and we have to go that nobody's here to solve that. We've also gotten into COVID uh, response, which was by accident. Uh, it started off as a charitable activity. Now we do 4% of all COVID testing in the United States, and we've kicked off several vaccination programs in the United States. So we are in the thick of how do we actually bring care straight from those who provide it, whether it's government or uh, private uh, providers, to the individuals who need it um, at, a, at a reduced cost, right? And the 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 big thing that I have seen in the time that I've been with Nomi is, and this, for the technologists to make you laugh, the insurance and medical world is still basically run on CSV files. And that was stunning to me because I rock up showing the world saying, hey, where, where are all my APIs? And there was a few out there, but the majority of the insurance uh, world or the majority of the benefits world or medical world is run by old platforms that are 30 years old that were never built to handle a pandemic and the volume of pandemic. And the infrastructure is creaking. Like, uh, and it's amazing. We don't have a single way to identify David in the United States. There could be, David could be one person, but we have thousands of record of the same David and we can't decide which one is the most unique. And so these are real problems 
that are affecting real people. And all the pandemic has done is exasperated it. And so I have really, really started enjoying getting into it and really, really saying, hey, there's another way we can do this, right? And let me show you. And and high transaction, high volume, enterprise-wide, those sorts of things are how we, we're playing into the game. So it, things are going quite well, quite busy. Uh, and if anybody's looking for uh, an engineering job and you're in Austin, Texas, let me know. Um, because <laughs> we're, 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 uh, we're, we're, we're very busy. Yeah. I mean, apart from the snow, it's a beautiful place to be, right? Most of the time, like Houston, like Texas, like uh, Austin, like yeah. beautiful places. But um, I mean, you you kind of snuck that in the middle there. Four percent of the U.S. base. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 a huge amount of people. Like that is a and and it, and how long's the company been going now? So it was founded in 2019, but that was more about the. So I, I, there's three co-founders: myself, uh, Mark uh, Newman, who's the CEO, and Josh Walker, who's the CEO. Um, Mark and Josh met in 2019, said, uh, they came up with this idea that they're, they want to go to this. Mark actually founded a company called higher view, um, which is the video interviewing company he sold it a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was trying to figure out what his second act was. And Josh has been in the insurance, uh, world for 20 years. Um, and, uh, and Mark and Josh met, they were talking and they said, Hey, here's a problem we can go solve. Uh, Mark knew me really well and said, "Hey, it's time for you to go and 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 uh, and, and change the world one more time." Uh, I told him I was too old, and he said, "Nah, dude, you, you got years left in you. Come come do this with me." And so, so it's about 2019 is when it was founded. We really started operating in anger in the spring of 2020, and it, it literally it was weeks weeks before the pandemic kicked in, and then the pandemic kicked in, and the rest is history at this point. Yeah. It is amazing. I mean, how many um, how many industry? Uh, I mean, there's the. I know we've talked about this a few times, Jason, but the the accelerant around COVID and actually the almost the um, uh, you know the sort of emperor's new clothes vibe of actually seeing all of those deficiencies in those, even if it's distribution of uh, you know uh, the the um, the lending capability or the the checks to to get people through this process, like that those deficiencies really are so stark in this period, aren't they? So, I mean, do you, it feels like the the accelerant for great organizations who are solving real problems with great technology and great people, it just feels like it's like the time is now. I would say in 2020, the digital transformation officer of the year was was COVID. Um, and, I, and I say that in jest, but it's really true. Think about all the companies that we can't allow remote workers to take place. Turns out you can, right? Uh, think about all, all the, um, you know, we can't, can't have meal services at scale. Turns out you can, right? Like those things um, really force people to actually get into the technology, get vested in the technology to solve the technology issues, right? So okay. I think I, I think that that was a, a big thing. I think I personally can't wait until it to be over because I want to be around people again. I want to go to a concert. I want to go to a football game. I want to travel again. Um, but I think that it also forced us to see that there are more efficient, better ways to interact with the world around us. Yeah, agreed. And that probably at the top of the hour is a decent place to to, to leave this. I think uh, can banks really build technology? I, I think probably Jason Bow, like between the three of us, I think it's 
they probably can build technology if they don't focus purely on the technology. If they focus on the the talent, the team, the culture, and everything that actually makes that technology really successful in those organizations, then absolutely, uh, they absolutely can do. So uh, with that, we're probably going to wrap up. Uh, if you're not already, highly recommend you follow Bo, highly recommend you follow Jason, and I would say you follow me as well, right? So thank you very much for everybody for joining us. Uh, Bo, where can people learn a little bit more about Nomi and everything that you're up to? Uh, so I would just check out uh, nomihealth.com. Uh, we've just relaunched our site there. You can find all kinds of uh, information about us. You could follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, we're getting all of our social medias up into place. So, um, but uh, nomihealth.com. Fantastic. All right, guys. Thank you very much for tuning in. Hope you found this fun. Uh, and uh, I mean, if you've got any feedback, feel free to drop me an email on david at 11fs.com. We always want to keep improving these things. Thank you very much. Speak to you guys later. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Search 11FS Fintech Insider on Clubhouse to join our club and join the conversation whenever we are live. See you there.